Thank you for listening to the Sharon Church Podcast. If you'd like to know more about the church, please visit us at SharonChurch.com. Now we hope you learn from and enjoy today's message. continue in worship this morning. If you'll grab your Bibles and turn to John chapter 12. I don't know what I'm saying. John chapter 12. Uh, You can pull up your devices. That's where I was going. You can even open your device to John chapter 12 is where we'll be this morning. Continuing our series that you may believe through the book of John. Um, We are over halfway through the book of John. How are we doing? Everybody doing okay with John so far? Are we bored yet? Too bad. We're still going. Uh, We got 10 more weeks left to go or so. We're Continuing to move through this, I love that as a church, um, we're just going to sit in Scripture and just read it and study it together. Uh, For many of us, in another 10 weeks or so, it'll be the first time that you've read through a book of the Bible and praise the Lord for that. It's an an amazing feat. I mean, that's that's a miracle for many of us to be able to do that. We've studied it together, and I'm just excited to continue this journey together. We'll be in John chapter 12. I'm going to do this one a little bit differently. Um, we've been walking verse by verse, and we still will through this one. But just over the past couple of weeks, the Lord has brought some different pieces of this and it took me a while uh, just to sit with Him in the Spirit to know exactly what was happening. So I'm going to do the best I can with it. It'll feel a little bit different, but I think we're going to arrive to, at where um, the Lord has called us to be uh, this morning. I don't know what kind of dreams you had growing up. Um, I grew up playing sports, so all of my dreams involve sports, like the things that I was going to accomplish in life uh, had nothing to do with Wells in Africa and more to with, do with me winning the World Series. Anybody else? Maybe you're better, maybe you're more humane, better Christians than I am. I didn't care about that. I just, I just wanted to win the World Series. And so I'd um, go out in the backyard. Many of you, maybe you're basketball players. And so you go on the front in your driveway and you got to hit, you know, you got one free throw left to tie the game. It's a one and one. Then you got to hit them both. And if you win, then your team wins the championship. Mine was baseball. And so I go out in the backyard. World Series game seven, bottom of the ninth, two outs, uh, man, man on first and second, we're down by two. And who comes to bat except me? I'm coming to bat because I'm the hero, dang it, and I'm going to come win the game. So I come to, the, to, to bat, uh, my walk-up song is playing, and the crowd's going crazy because they know, I mean, they know, like Jeremy's up to bat. So this is, this is going to go the way we want it to go. And so uh, I get two strikes on me in my make-believe dream. Uh, just, just because I like suspense. Like I, I could have hit both of those. I just decided not to. And so I, uh, <laughs> just, I throw the ball up and I, I swing and then I miss. And then I'm reminded uh, that, that it's actually called time. So that, that pitch didn't count. So another one gets to come. And so I, anyway, at the end, I mean, obviously I win the game, obviously. And so I hit the home run. We win the game. The crowd goes wild, right? Starts chanting my name. Uh, people with my face tattooed on their leg are just so excited that what just happened. And they're cheering. Uh, my teammates rush out to me at home plate. They put me up on their shoulders and we march around the stadium. I like the walls of Jericho seven times and the walls come crumbling down. Then I'm a hero. And for the rest of my life, I am World Series champion and MVP, Jeremy Gardner. That's who I am for the rest of my life. Uh, and then as I started playing more actual baseball, not make-believe baseball, I started to realize that I really can't hit. I, I can't. I can't hit home runs. I've hit one home run in my entire life. And that was at batting practice when I was a sophomore in college because the left field fence was 250 feet away. And so that's why uh, the wind was blowing out and I got it just right. So I realized I'm not going to be able to do that. And so here's what I did. Then I just switched the narrative around. So now I'm playing defense in the bottom of the ninth of the World Series. And I'm playing shortstop and my team is up by one with the winning run on third. 
And uh, their guy comes up to bat, their hero, who's not as much of a hero as I am, but still a hero, comes up to bat and he gets a line drive in the hole and I dive and I catch it. And we win the World Series. And my team comes out, the crowd goes wild. I get carried off on their shoulders, Gatorade dumped everywhere. I'm doing all kinds of interviews. Jimmy Fallon has me on. It's just, it's, it's a lot of fun uh, together. Um, anybody else have dreams like that? Anyone else? Where it, in all of my dreams growing up, I was the hero. Right? I never had a dream that I was just like, I was the guy on the bench who held somebody else up, right? Like I'm Blaine Gabbert on the Bucks and Tampa, and Tampa Bay wins the Super Bowl. I'm like, oh, I'm a champ too. Uh, not like that. But in my dreams, I'm the hero. Anybody else have dreams like that? We don't have dreams that someone else is the hero or uh, that we're the pitcher who gives up the winning home run. That, that's real life. But in, in our dreams, we are the hero. We're the center of the story. It comes naturally to us growing up that we're just the center of the story, um, that the world should revolve around us. And then over time, hopefully, we mature in such a way that we realize there's a bigger world than just the backyard World Series bottom of the ninth game that we play very often. There's been a rising epidemic. In fact, there's a book written in 2009 called The Narcissism Epidemic in our culture where we become so egocentric in our world that everything revolves around us. And now, uh, with the upswing of social media and influencers and what was reality TV back in the early to mid-2000s, and now that's growing in such a way that you become famous by living in a trailer in South Georgia somewhere. You become famous, and, but now you're an influencer because you can do some kind of a, a dance on TikTok, and then now you're famous, and whatever it is. It's, the world has moved in such a way that we are the center of the world. And the enemy has used it in a way because he knows that we are hardwired for value. We want value and worth and significance. Some of us um, tell stories from years ago, um, but they're no longer true stories. Now they're embellished stories. Some of us, they're actually somebody else's stories that we've stolen and co-opted to make it into our story because now we're the hero. Narcissism, psychologists have learned, has kind of two different branches. One is your grandiose narcissist who's just bragging all the time, all about pride, all about the biggest and the baddest and the best stories and the most money and the fastest cars or best looking, whatever it is. And then there's something called vulnerable narcissism, which is more founded on arrogance through pity. It's the idea that I want attention and so I'm going to pity you into giving me attention. In narcissism, uh, there's three uh, main characteristics of narcissism, entitlement, manipulation, and there's a lack of empathy. But again, this is all built into something that we're all born with. We're all born with wanting to have our needs and wants met. But that's rooted in the idea that we all want to have value. We all want to have significance. We've been created in this way. And it's not just the world that struggles with it. This has made its way into churches. This um, narcissism, egocentric way of living has made its way into churches, into the corporate church, which is just an awful thing to say, but into the church, right? We've, now it's about um, we're the best church. We have the best this. We have the best that. And so we've become egocentric even as churches. Pastors are prone to this. Like I, I am prone to it. I, I like affirmation. I like people to think highly of me. I want to be valued. I want to have worth. I, I like all of those things. And, and because now I stand on a stage and I'm the one talking, it feels like that's naturally going to seep into my life. It's also seeped into our lives just as Christians. 
the way that you are to read and study the Bible is called exegesis, that you pull the truth out of the Scripture, that whatever the Scriptures, how they're written, there's truth in there, and we are to dig to find exegete to pull out the truth of Scripture. There's a, another form of study called eisegesis, which is where you put your version of truth into the text. You put it into the scripture. So you manipulate text of the scriptures to make it say what you want it to say. Now there's something and a lot of theologians are calling narcissus, which is where I put myself at the center of the story. I am the point. And there are pastors and authors and people teaching through narcissus that I am the point. It's, it's where we get uh, studying the stories of David and Goliath and the idea that I am David. I'm the one who slays giants. Completely missing the point that David is Jesus. He's the picture of Jesus who slays giants. It's all seeped its way into the church as well. We're going to pick up in John chapter 12. It's the beginning of the last week of Jesus' ministry on earth. Um, almost half of the book of John is dedicated to seven days of Jesus' life. Like we've flown through the first um, 33 years of Jesus' life. Now we've got a week and we've got another 10 chapters or so to study this. And so it's going to get a little more minute, a little more detailed, a little more narrative as, as we study through this. We're going to, I want to look at a verse in John chapter 12, and then I want to try to put it in some context, both of the text and where we find ourselves today. But I want you to carry with you that idea of um, egocentric living, that we are the point. John chapter 12, verse 42, speaking of uh, religious leaders, verse 42. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities, so civil authorities and religious authorities, believed in Jesus. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. They would not be excommunicated, not just kicked out of church that Sunday morning, but completely removed from church life. But look at verse 43, and this is the verse we're going to build off of. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. They love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. When we speak of glory a lot in the church, and Scripture does this too, it speaks of glory to God. We give God all the glory. We, all praise is, is written throughout Scripture. It's true. There are some moments in Scripture and some uh, texts that's built off of an earlier text that God actually does give us glory. Notice the, the presupposition, the preposition from, from. Glory from man versus glory from God. The truth is God does give us glory. This word glory uh, is a weight or a value or significance. There is value that comes from God to us. But we, like these religious and civil leaders, are prone to desire the value and significance that comes from man as opposed to the value and significance that comes from God. This is what creates narcissism. This is what creates me being the hero in the bottom of the ninth in my backyard. This is, this is what's birthed in all of us. But this is all birthed back in Genesis. God creates the world. He creates it in six days. On the seventh day, he rests. The first five days, he creates the universe. At the end of each day, God says, and it was good. 
The sixth day, God creates man in his own image. He creates man and he creates woman. And at the end of day six, God doesn't say that it's good. God says that it's very good. There is something significantly different about humanity compared to the rest of creation. It's why it might be considered humane uh, to put a dog down, but inhumane to put a human being down. There's, there's inherent value that comes from just being created as a human being, being created by God in his image, the imago Dei in the image of God. There's value there. Genesis continues, Adam and Eve, the first human beings, are in a garden where they have everything they would ever want. But there's one tree in the middle of the Garden of, of Eden called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God said, you can have everything in this garden, but this one tree you may not eat of. Evil enters the scene. The enemy enters the scene. And what the enemy wants to do for us is he wants to pick at, poke at, undermine where we find significance and value. Beginning of creation, Adam and Eve found their value primarily, only, solely in that they are created by God. They are loved by God. He walks with them in the cool of the day. They have complete union with him. And the enemy steps in and he draws their attention to the tree in the middle of the garden. And he begins to undermine God's value in them, making them question, hey, if God actually valued you, if he thought as highly of you as you think he does, wouldn't he just give you that tree too? Because it seems like he's holding out on you. So either he doesn't trust you or he doesn't love you like he thinks he loves you. And this is all between the lines, but this is what the enemy is doing. He's trying to undermine or erode uh, the idea that we find our value simply in being with God, that that's where we find our value. Uh, Eve partakes of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. She gives to her passive husband who then partakes and they find themselves separated from God. Evil enters their soul and they're separated from God. And God comes looking for them looking to go on the walk with them, but they've run and they've hidden. And they've hidden themselves and now they've found fig leaves and they've sewed loincloths on themselves as if to say, we're going to fix whatever it is that's broken between us and God. We're going to fix it with these fig leaves. This is what's different between us. This must be why we feel the way that we feel. Let's cover that up. Still hiding, God comes from them. They have a whole conversation. But the enemy had weaseled his way in so much so that the moment that fracture happened, Adam and Eve no longer felt worthy of the love of God. So they tried to fix it so that they could feel worthy again. They tried to fix what made them feel different, fix what uh, made them separate from God, that they might cover up their inconsistencies, that they might find that again. And their story is our story. In our sin, in our brokenness, we have given up any hope of glory from God. God does ascribe us worth. He does ascribe us value. He does ascribe each and every one of us significance. It's why the most mentally and physically handicapped soul is still more valuable than even a racehorse because God has ascribed value and worth. 
But in our brokenness, when that's fractured, when we um, lose that relationship with the Lord through our sin, we begin to question if we actually can receive value from God. We don't feel worthy of what he has for us. And before us big, bad, burly men begin to think this is just a female problem or an estrogen issue, I want you to know if you would just stop long enough, you would know that you feel it too. If you would quit trying to earn and prove your manhood and prove your masculinity, if you would stop trying to um, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and you would just sit for a second, you would recognize it too. We've given up on any shot at receiving value from God because of our brokenness. And the enemy has us where he wants us because of it. Adam and Eve have recognized their lack of worthiness, and so they run and hide just like us. We feel broken beyond repair. Maybe you don't today because of the restoration of Jesus in your life, but many of us have before. And the enemy wants nothing more than to draw us back to that place, which is why every time you sin, every time you break the heart of God, he reminds you what a failure you are. That God could never love someone like you. We feel broken. But because of our creation in Genesis 1 and 2, because of how we were created, because we were considered very good at the end of day 6, There is something within us. There's a a cavern, a hole that can only be settled by the honor and value that God gives to our souls. We're hardwired to seek it because that's how God created us. God created us to find significance in him. God created us to find value and worth in him. St. Augustine says it this way. He says that you have made us for yourself, O Lord. And our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Now, I don't know what you've come in here with today, but I would imagine in a crowd this size that many of us are restless today. We've been created to find rest in the Lord. He's created us for him. And we're restless, though, today because we haven't found our rest in him. A number of years ago, there's um, a book came out called The Five Love Languages. Anybody read The Five Love Languages? Okay. Um, mine uh, is words of affirmation. That's, that's, what, uh, that's where I find love is through words of affirmation. Um, but I, I've had a real bad misconception about that, and many people have um, growing up and trying to figure out how all of that works and where that came from. And, um, Meredith, her love language is not words of affirmation. It's different. And so... Uh, A lot of our strife in marriage comes from my need for words of affirmation and her doing it in such a way that should settle my soul. And yet it doesn't because there's something that I can't quite figure out about it. And so inside of me, uh, in my sin nature, like just in my flesh is an incessant need uh, to be approved of. Now, it can come from my nature, how I was born, could come from nurture, probably comes from a combination of those two things. But I, um, in sin, when I'm not healthy, I desperately crave approval and affirmation. And I will seek it in any way I can. I will, um, as a Christian, though, I've learned that I can't seek it the way the world seeks it. So I seek my affirmation through Christian means, right? I try to do certain things to earn affirmation. In places where I've served before, um, my desperate 
my desperation for affirmation and being with people who aren't naturally wired to affirm is soul crushing to me in such a way that then because I'm not getting affirmation, I'm not getting approval, I don't feel valued, I don't feel significant, I don't feel worthwhile, and I don't feel worth, then what I try to do in my sin is I try to make myself bigger. I try to take up more space. And I don't mean I tell bigger stories and I, and I embellish a lot of things, but then what I do, the way that I'm wired, is that I take on more tasks to try to seek and find, well, if that didn't get me valued, that didn't get, didn't get me your affirmation, what if I did this? Would that do it? That doesn't do it. How about this? Does that do it for you? So I feel like I'm just like uh, trying to pet the dog to find out where he likes to be scratched. And I, I keep doing it all. So I find myself then burnt out trying to do everything that I can to earn someone's approval, to get their attention. I'm saying, notice me, notice me, affirm me, approve of me. And over the past few years, just... Um, through wise counsel and through just conversations with my wife and, and walking through what um, we've walked through and what many marriages have walked through, what I've learned is that affirmation for me doesn't inflate my ego. It actually settles me down. Value, I think we're all wired a little bit in this way. When we find value and worth and significance, the misconception is that it, it makes us arrogant. It makes us conceited. The opposite is actually true. When we find value and significance, it actually settles down our fleshly pursuit for it. It's because I, like you, have been hardwired by the creator of the universe to find my rest in him. And my soul is restless until I find it in him. And we're all the same way. And so there are places that we run. Matt Chandler in his book called Recovering Redemption talks about these four places that we run to try to fix that unsettledness, that brokenness inside of us. The first place we run is within ourselves. We run to our own strengths, our own abilities, our own work ethic. Um, we are the pull ourselves by our bootstraps kind of people. We run to, well, if I just work harder, if I do better, if I study more, if I work out better, if I, if I go on this diet, if I study this, if I read these books, if I get there earlier, then I'm going to find value, the value and significance I've been craving. Some of us, we run towards ourselves, whatever's within ourselves. The second place we run to is other people. We want other people to affirm us, other people to give us value and significance. Uh, for those of us who are married, this is a dangerous place for us to be because we begin to put the expectations that can only be met by Jesus on our spouse. And Meredith is an amazing wife and she is an awful savior. And many of us, were seeking that through other people. We want our souls to be satisfied through a relationship, uh, through a boss or a coach or a teammate, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a husband or a wife. So we look for a best friend where we look for others to satisfy that within us. The third place we run to is the world. We want the world to affirm us. We want the world to settle us. So we run to all sorts of things. Uh, the extreme things of, of drugs and alcohol abuse. We run to those things or pornography. Sometimes though, we, well, all we're running to, we just want to be affirmed. And so we align ourselves politically with people that we think are going to affirm us and going to settle that within us. The rise of social media has made this very dangerous for us because we keep getting the dopamine hits from the likes that come across our Instagram feed or our Facebook feed or through our TikTok. And we just, we keep getting that hit. And so we crave more and more and more. We want the world to satisfy something that only the Lord can settle 
settle and satisfy. And finally, many of us, particularly in the South, we run to religion to satisfy that in us. We run to church work. Uh, We run to getting an office in a church, to um, being a small group leader, to serving our tails off just in hopes that someone would recognize us and our souls would be settled. We run to doing the right things, memorizing scripture, listening to podcasts, trying to prove our worth and significance to the church and using religion to get us there. We run to these things that ultimately are empty because we've been created for the Lord and our hearts are restless until we find our rest in him. So with that in mind, let's look at this story at the beginning of John chapter 12. Remember, uh, the leaders were seeking, they, were, they loved the glory from man more than the glory from God. Now we've got um, a story at the beginning of John chapter 12 that's going to give us exactly what that means. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was. You remember Lazarus from last week? Jesus rose him from the dead, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. I could have just kept reading instead of explaining things to you like a four-year-old. Verse 2. So they gave a dinner for him, for Jesus, there at their house. Martha served Lazarus' sister, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table because he's tired. He was dead, and now he's alive. Verse 3. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard, which just sounds amazing, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Uh, Mary is serving, worshiping by serving Uh, Mary is worshiping by um, expressing this worship, by spending this perfume on him, but anointing him for burial, preparing him. So you've got that. Then pay attention to the next words in verse 4. But Judas Iscariot. John's making a point. He wants you to see this dichotomy between what's happening with these characters. Mary at the feet of Jesus, pouring out whatever she had on him to worship him. There's the idea here that Mary is settled in who she is. If you study uh, the life of Mary, there's been some ups and downs for her, but she seems really settled in who Jesus says that she is. But there's another character, and his name is Judas Iscariot, one of the 12 apostles. He who was about to betray Jesus. And he said, why was this ointment, why was this nard, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii, 300 days wages? So a year's salary. This could have been, this could have been sold for $45,000, $50,000. Why wasn't it? To be given to the poor. Well, John says that Judas said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. Well, how do you, how do you really feel, John, about Judas? And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Now, other gospel writers, Matthew and Mark in particular, tell us that it's not just Judas who asked this question. Other disciples did too. But John is trying to give you a picture of comparison between Mary and Judas. Mary is resting in the Lord. And then Judas, who is craving attention. Verse 7, Jesus says, leave her alone, let her be, so that she may keep it, or she has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. John 12, 8 is a different sermon for a different time. We read in Matthew that Judas stands up from this moment in Matthew 26, and he goes to the chief priests, and he asks them this question in Matthew 26, what will you give me if I deliver Jesus over to you? They paid him 30 pieces of silver or about $1,000. Uh, 
And from that moment, Judas sought opportunity to betray Jesus. Mary affirmed for her worship in the presence of Jesus. Judas, just like us, narcissistic, desperate to be affirmed, desperate to have his restless soul brought to rest, has this moment and it's all he can take from Jesus. Now, I can, I can picture the life of Judas. He's always been on the outside, right? He has, you don't hear much about him. He's not involved in healings or the miracles. Jesus knows who he is when he calls him to follow him. He just can't quite break into that group of the other 11. And it probably feels like um, the sin that Judas has been walking in is constantly uh, being brought to the forefront. No one else knows it, but he feels it. He feels like, was that about me? Was that, that was about me, wasn't it? Was that me? Are you talking about me? He knows he's been stealing. He knows he's a thief. And so in this moment, I just think what happened for Judas is it's the straw that broke the camel's back and he can't do it anymore. I'm not going to get what I want from Jesus. So let me go find someone who will align with me. And so he leaves because he's been craving satisfaction, been craving rest in the ways of the world. And he hasn't found it there. And the invitation of Jesus is, yeah, yeah, you can find it in me. And Judas says, I don't want it that way. I'm going to go the easy route, and I'm going to find these guys who will pay me to betray you. And he does. John is trying to give us that picture between Mary and Judas. But it continues through this passage. Go to verse 20. And Jesus is going to speak to what we read about in verses 42 and 43, but he's going to give us kind of a prescription of how to handle it. Now among those, verse 20, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks, some Gentiles, who came to the Jewish feast of Passover. They normally wouldn't. They maybe come to watch, but they've, they've come. So these came to Philip because Philip's name is a Greek name. And so the Greeks, the Gentiles, came to Philip because he was from Bethsaida in Galilee and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Well, Philip went and told Andrew. So then Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Remember, Jesus has said repeatedly, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. And now there's this moment. Don't miss the significance of it. Jesus has said before that I came to deliver good news to the freedom to the captives, particularly to the Jews. But because the Jews won't accept it, he says, it will move on to the Gentiles. So when the Gentiles come seeking salvation, Jesus knows it's time. The gospel has moved through the synagogue, not accepted, and now it's out to the Gentiles. And now it's time that according to John 3, 16, that he would die for the world. So he knows it's time. The hour has come and things begin to shift for him. The way that he talks changes it gets a little bit darker. It gets just a little bit more on edge. And he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So he's foreshadowing his death. And the Greeks want to follow Jesus. And so he says, verse 25, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in the world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever loves the glory from man will actually end up losing all of it. But whoever hates the glory from man and loves the glory from God will actually get what it is he's longing for. Verse 26, if anyone serves me, that's the Greek word that we get deacon from. 
Dachnos, if, if anyone were to serve me, he must follow me. There's two different Greek words for serving or servant. One is doulos, like a bond servant, and that person could serve from a distance, could serve from far off. This diaknos, this kind of servant, was someone who served with the master, served alongside of the master. So he says, okay, Greeks, you think you're far off, but if you want to serve me, you have to follow me, which means you have to be with me. You have to be on my heels. And where I am, there will my servant, my deacon, be also. Great, you want to serve me. You're going to have to follow me. And Jesus is speaking of the way that we say, well, I follow Jesus. What he's saying is you're going to have to follow me where I'm going. And where Jesus knows he's going is to the cross. Okay. If you want to serve me, here's where we're going. We're going to the cross. Because where I am, my servant will be at the cross too. If anyone serves me, he says at the end of 26, my father or the father will honor him. The father will glory him. The father will value him. The father will place significance on him. You want the glory from God and not the glory from man. The only way to the glory from God is through the cross. You want your soul to be settled. You want your restless soul to be settled. You're only going to get there through the cross. And that's the problem for us, isn't it? That's why we choose the cheap substitute of the glory from man rather than the glory from God because we don't want to go to the cross. We don't want to kill the things that we like. We don't want to kill our sin. We don't want to kill, deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow. We don't want to do that. So um, rather than, than seeking to obtain the glory from God, we're going to settle for the glory from man because that doesn't require a cross. But Jesus is saying, if you love this so much and you think it won't cost you anything, it's going to cost you everything. And yet, if you're not going to pursue the glory from God because you think it's going to cost you everything, it will cost you everything, but you will also gain everything. This is what it means to be a deacon. It means to choose the glory from God over the glory from man. This is what it means for us to follow Jesus. If we want the honor of God, then we're going to have to serve him close up. We're going to have to be with him. But this word to follow is the idea of what the Puritans called withness, that we would be with him. So don't get this mixed up. Here's the danger. Uh, the honor that comes from the Father is not because of our doing, but because of our being. The honor that's due to us from the Father, the glory from the Father, doesn't come because of our doing. It comes just because of our being with him. The problem is to be with him means to be at the cross with him. But it's just through being with him. So one place we get hung up is through the doing. And so we try to do and do and do instead of just being. The second place many of us get hung up is the word father. Because we don't have a father who gave us value and worth. It's not what our fathers did. Our fathers reminded us how worthless we are. Our fathers um, beat us because we were worthless. Our fathers made us feel like we weren't valuable enough. Our fathers made us feel like we had to earn their love and affection and affirmation. Our fathers only gave us value if we did the right things. That's how we got attention. If we did the wrong things, we didn't have value to our father. Many of us get hung up here. There's no father that honors me. That's not true. Uh, but we have a good father. 
the purest of fathers. So dads, sidebar, give value to your children, not because they deserve it, but because they're yours. We're all restless until we find our rest in him. And some of that's because of our nature, some of it's because of our nurture, and we're just struggling to find rest. So let's just, um, as an exercise by means of confession, if you would just raise your hand, how many of you would say the well that you run to, the places you run to find value and worth is that you run to yourself. You can raise your hand and raise it high and say, yeah, I run to myself. I run to my own effort, my own ability. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it. I'm going to figure it out this time. How many of you would say, I run, I run to others, what others people think about me. I, I highly value what others. You can raise your hand. My hand's up with you. Anybody who would say, I, I run to the world. I want to align myself with things that find me value in the world. Anyone? I mean, we're in church, so you can't say that. So later we can talk about it. Uh, how many of you would say, no, I, I run to religion. I run to trying to be a good person that I might find value in being a good church person. Here's the truth for all of us. We're all seeking rest somewhere besides the arms of the Father. So then what do we do? What do we do? Well, Matthew 16, Jesus says, If anyone were to come after me, I would follow me. Let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So then we've got to deny our flesh. And our flesh wants glory from man. That's what we want. You've got to deny it. For some of us, that means get off of social media. It's killing you. It's killing your soul. It might mean uh, finding a new friend group. It might mean um, finding different routines and habits. Secondly, uh, if we're going to deny ourselves, we have to take up our cross. So what does that mean? That means confession. It means confession and repentance. Nail your sin to the cross. Quit playing with it. And then finally, we need to follow him. Just be with Jesus. I want to read Zephaniah 3.17 over you today in just a way that I hope helps this. Prophet Zephaniah says, The Lord your God is in your midst. A mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. And pay attention. He will quiet you by his love. He will settle you. He will bring you rest by his love. Not by his demands, not by your perfection, not by your doing. He's going to love you first. And he will exalt over you with loud singing. If you'll bow your heads and close your eyes as we wrap up this morning. I don't know where you find yourself today. I don't know what you've um, brought in here with you. But I know this. Because I know me. And I know that we're humans who are hardwired to find our value from God. But we chase value from man instead. And to confess might mean this. How many of you, you'd raise your hand and say, yeah, that's me today. I'm restless. And I'm seeing now it's because I've been trying to find my rest in the glory from man, so the glory from God. Anybody would raise your hand and say, that's me today. I'm, I'm restless. I'm anxious. I'm nervous. I'm on edge. I feel like I don't measure up. I'm not good enough. Let the Lord quiet you with his love today. With his grace and his mercy. 
Your value has nothing to do with what you have to offer Him. It has everything to do with you being His. I wonder if there's anybody here this morning who would say, no, I've, I've always been restless. I've never found my rest in the Lord. I didn't even know I could. I didn't even know that that's what salvation was. Anybody this morning who would say, no, I, I need salvation. I want to follow Jesus. Like, I, I really want to give my life to Him. You pray over us this morning. God, I thank you for today. God, I'm so sorry for the ways that I have pursued rest um, in other gods, other idols, other wells, other things to satisfy me only to come up empty. And I thank you so much that you aren't angry with me because of that. But with compassion, you're trying to call me back to the living water. For the people in this room this morning who are restless, uh, may they find their rest in you. Remind them that you settle them. You quiet us with your love. You exalt over us with singing. God, for some of us, the ways that we've sought the glory from man has led us down a path that we can't believe we're here. It's just one small decision we made years ago, and we can't believe this is where we are. There's no way you would love us now. There's no way you'd give us worth now. God, would you call out the lie for what that is? Give a special dwelling of your presence for those people today. May we be a church that seeks not the glory from man, but the glory from God. May we deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God. May he satisfy the deepest longings of your heart that you would be with him today. May grace and peace be with you. You are dismissed. We love you.